All right, Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 12, Revelation 22. We have been working through this particular book, as you're familiar, if you've been here a little bit, um, on Wednesday nights as well as Sundays. So we're kind of moving along chronologically, leapfrogging a little bit. We have leapfrogged today. We left off in Revelation 21, midway through on Wednesday night. And now we're going to pick up in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 12. Now, um, I've referred to this message title as ever ready. It means to be not an old school battery, but to be literally ever ready for the, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the mindset that's so important that we see in Matthew 24, we see through many of the parables, we see through Jesus' words, we see through this particular book, is to be ready, to be aware to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Not just like watching so you can walk over to the event, but eager to be a part of, involved in this, this return of Jesus Christ. Well, he'll return in the clouds and call his church to himself. Now, I want to give you some background and some ways to work through this particular portion. Nothing unique. It's actually consistent with what we've looked at through this particular letter. In, here in uh, Revelation um, 22 as in previously, you want to see and be aware of the past and the present and the future. You know, why is that important? Well, in this particular letter, because we're sitting here in our present, looking forward to the future, but then we're reading about things that are taking place in the past, when John received this message, addressed the things that were present at the time of John and that particular era, and then also bringing forth the things of the future. And if we, if we, if we inadvertently don't figure out which was where, it gets kind of confusing, agreed? You read a portion, you're like, ooh, I don't want to be in Revelation 6. That's horrible. As a Christian, you won't be. What? Yeah, see, he'll remove the church and then bring judgment. So you're, you, you're not there. You're reading about what's happening then, but then is and then, then is there. Did that effectively confuse you? So you see, because you're reading a prophetic book that hasn't taken place yet, but it's going to take place. So it's so important because we can kind of like, kind of get that awareness. See, think about it this way. Jesus appeared to John. That was in the past, but it was John's present. Right in that moment, it's happening to him. He was persecuted. He was put in prison on the island of Patmos, and, and God appears. Jesus comes to him and speaks to him, and he spoke about things that were taking place at that time. The things that are is the way he said it. The things of the church. So here John is, is experiencing this present revelation of what's happening. Jesus appeared to him. And then he details, Jesus does, about how things will be in the future. Now for you and I, we read of what is written in the past. That's past to us. But it has applications to be believed in the present because we're still in that age, the church age. So it's to be taken place here and expected to take place in the future. So the content shows us sometimes this is the chapter 1 two and three, or specifically two and three. This is the current age, the contemporary time, the present for us. But then from chapter four, verse one, and on through the judgment, 
See, that's to come. The, the rapture of the church will take place. We're looking ahead to that. Does that help? Well, if you can keep that in your head as you're kind of working through the book, and so you're asking a question, okay, is this past, present, or future for me? Is this soon to be, or is this something that previously took place? I think it helps to kind of process it. In verse 12, we have Jesus speaking, which is another uh, challenge to us. Sometimes you have the words of Christ, Jesus himself, because he appeared to John and then took John up into heaven to give him a, a past, present, future view of things that have happened and things that will take place. So Jesus is speaking, and if you've read through this, you notice, okay, well, those ones were easy to find. If you have like a, if your pub, the publisher of your Bible chose to put Jesus' words in red, it's pretty visual when he's talking. You know what I'm saying? It's pretty easy. Okay, this is Jesus because I got a red indicator. Other portions, you have to catch the content. Is it an angel speaking to John? Or is it John speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit? See, we, we got to understand this letter that come from Jesus involves three at least different personages, if you would. So now we have Jesus. I'm going to pick up in verse 12 of Revelation 22. We're going to read through verse 21, and then we're going to talk about the first two verses. Because I want you to catch the context. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Verse 15, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. All right, so what we're going to, I'm going to mention one other thing that will help you in this text, in this context. We're reading the end of the book of, Re the letter of Revelation, revealing to the church. And we've already went through the judgments, and the church, the church has been raptured, and the judgments have been poured out. And at this point in chapter 22, the, the, the millennial reign has taken place. And here we are in this heavenly realm that was revealed in chapter 21. But the content we just read is back here with you and I. You see why that gets a little hard sometimes working through this book? This is not talking that there's going to be outside the heavenly Jerusalem these people that want to get in that are knocking on the gate and hoping that they can get in. See, that, that's, that's all been dealt with over here. So what we have here is Jesus speaking to what we could say contemporarily to the church. In here in the latter part of maybe an exhortation. And we then see in verse 14... Possibly, probably John speaking, 
talking about these, these things that are and, and how it is to, to live and blessed in such a way. I'm not going to, I'm going to, I want to give the content in overall because we're going to spend a little time on that next week as well. Today, what I want to, I want to do is, is really with an understanding of this timing, but also sensitive to God's direction for us individually for application. If we read the Bible and we look at the, the previous and we're grasping the present and we're longing for the future, but we're not changed, there's a, there's a, there's a serious fault, a serious problem that we have to resolve. We have to, to work through what prevents the transformation. So let's, let's consider here as we look at a few things, Jesus speaking to John, John representing the church, receiving this letter firsthand from Jesus, and it says there in verse 12, and behold, think of it like this. Look, listen, hey, your parents have to do that sometimes. Hey, because that, that, that's really what it stands like. Hey, look, many don't see things because they don't look. If you instructed someone, hey, look at that over there, and they just got settled in, and they're comfy where they're facing the other direction, you're like, look, man, check that out. Yeah, I've seen them before. Eh, whatever. You, they, they miss out on a physical experience because they just didn't look. Is that not true in spiritual realms as well? You Some have a, have a pessimistic, a half-empty kind of view, like, ugh. They're related to Eeyore or someone I don't know. They're like, oh, bother. And it's like, oh, man, the church, this world's just going to hell in a handbasket and all these little cliches and things, like, oh, bummer. But, but check this out. Like, yeah, yeah, I've heard it before. They don't look. And sometimes we just don't, we just get in a, in a funk or we're just like, Jesus is saying, behold, look, be ready. Why do I say be ready? I am coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Look. Be ready for what? For the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Because he's coming quickly. Uh, Pastor Dan, could I ask a question? What does quickly mean? Because it's sure dragging his feet in my book. It's been 2,000 years, let's be serious. It, it's, it didn't happen quickly. John was the author, or the pen, the hand that God, the author, wrote this letter through 2,000 years ago. And he's saying, quickly. It's going to come quickly. And then you're going, I think there's a translational error on this one. Quickly? Well, think of it. We're going to get into this in, in some application here real quick. When, when something happens, it may take a long time to start, but it's quickly over. It's the same use of the word. And we're sometimes thinking, well, if he said quickly, why is he taking so long? Because some of us are so eager and so longing to see Jesus face to face, to experience the heavenly realm, which is a good hunger, to experience that. We're like, oh, man, please, come on. And, and, and then we're torn. We're bittersweet. We want to see our kids grow. We want to see our grandkids. We want to see people come to Christ, but I want to get out of here. And it's like, oh, Lord, I, I want to be ready. I want to be looking for the glorious return. Let's think about some application as you turn with me over to Second Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, this is where we are going to read through 
And I believe it's a very simple uh, applicational sense, but you're going to see as we read through, you're going to be sparked to memory of, of things we've read in the first 20 some chapters of Revelation of the time and the age and the day. If you and I as Christians are so heavenly minded that we have no compassion or empathy for the people around us, we're missing our purpose. How can we reach and share and herald and declare to someone we just don't want to be around? You see what I'm saying? We want to have this awareness of this anticipation, this joyful expectation to, to, for the heavenly element and, and eternal life. But we also want to know, this is where I am right now. How do I connect? How do I relate to people? Well, one way you relate is you realize how they think to a certain degree. In verse 3 or verse 1 of 2 Peter 3, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both which, of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So we know Peter is the author, or I mean that instrument that God writes through. He's writing to people. He knew of their, their, their commitment to Christ. He knew of their hunger for, for Jesus. He knew who they were. And so, but he also knows the world they live in. And goes on to say in verse 2, that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he directs them back to the word. He says, listen, I want you to be aware. Now they have the, what we call the Old Testament. Because the New Testament isn't fully compiled at the present of Second Peter, the time of Second Peter. So he says, you have, you have the, the words of the Old Testament. And you have the words and exhortations that come through us as people who had seen the risen Lord, who had seen Jesus face to face. And he says, you, know, you have these, we're, we're, we're instruments that God uses. Verse 3, knowing this first, that the scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. In the first century of the church, God is saying through the apostle Peter to the people then and now, listen, you know, people are going to come in saying, yeah, 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 whatever. They actually did it in the Old Testament too, which is evidenced by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because they were saying, yeah, yeah, he's not coming and he's not the one. But they continued to scoff and really kind of ridicule and mock this, this belief that God knows what's going on on this planet. And at one moment, he will intervene. And the prince of this age, the one who's allowed to, to do things that are almost reprehensible to our mind, Satan himself, he will be constrained. He will, be, he will no longer be able to do it. And God will then say, hey, this is how it's going from here on out. So you see that these, there's, there's those who will come in the last days. So they're right. This letter we see is in the present to Peter, to the audience. But he's looking to a, a time because he wouldn't say, he would have said these days. Now, I will share with you what I think is easily revealed in Scripture, that Peter was living in the last days. He was the agent that spoke the message out of God, uh, Acts chapter, I believe, 2, even through 3, 4, um, about the last days that they're in. But if you want to see the last days, I see it here with the Apostle Peter, and then you and I are in the last of the last days. You see, there's this progression and this fulfillment of prophecy and these things unfolding that, we, that verify what's being said is getting closer to the deadline, so to speak. He says that in the last days, they'll walk according to their own lusts. Not because of a love for truth, a lust is a, a disproportionate appetite for something. Is it okay to, to want food? 
Thank you. I'm looking forward to a good lunch and a barbecue tonight at our house. So I'm like, hey, food's good. Is it beneficial ultimately to, to lust for food or to have a disproportionate appetite? So this is like just, you know, like marital counseling right now for Kim and I. I went fishing yesterday with my brothers and their, you know, three and a four-year-old uh, nephew or like, yeah. So anywhere we're all these guys on the boat, and she cooks chocolate chip cookies, homemade, soft and gooey, and says, "Here, take this and share this with the guys." Nope. <laughs> I mean, I took them, but I, and I did share them. I I kept them in my bag to share them. I didn't put them in open domain in the boat where you could get to them. I kept them in my bag to share them because they're good. They're really good. And I'm like, I, I had one. I, man, these are as, they're, they're just as good on a river as they are on a sofa. It was like, man. And if you see the picture. Like, I want another one. And then I'll want, thank you, another one. And so it goes. And, you know, you know what happens? We deal with our kids. Why can't I have candy for dinner? It's just not good for you to have that much candy. It's disproportionate appetite. So often lust, and it's true this way as well, is referred to or thought of mostly in a sexual sense. It's just a disproportionate appetite. So here these people were scoffing because their appetites for the world were stronger than their appetites for the Lord. And so they wanted more of this over here. And so they scoffed because you got to, if you know this is what you should do, then you got to come up a reason with a good reason to do what you're going to do because you're not going to do what you should do. So what do you do? Not that anybody here would do that. But you scoff. You kind of like, oh, yeah, I ain't going to matter anyway. Other people do it. We just should do this because I have this in disproportionate appetite for these things and I don't want to admit he's coming soon so I believe there were some even in that day that denied his return and they said things like verse 4 where's the promise of his coming since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation I have been hearing this since I was in grade school okay I get it Jesus is coming back everybody look busy I get it Okay, I hear this. And it's really drawn off the Old Testament, where those messianic, speaking of the Messiah, those declarations were in Genesis, they were in through the prophets, they were in the Psalms, spoke of his coming. And the forefather said, yeah, no, 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 no. And notice what it says. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Listen, life goes on. People are born. People, are die, people die. Things keep going. Generation after generation after generation. This is how it is. Sometimes there's war. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's good things. Sometimes, it's just how the cycle of life is. And it's an it's a elevation of hu- humanism in, in an element where we just say everything's explainable. But it's actually dishonest. It's not really truthful. Because we see in the next portion, for this they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved for fire till the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what are we talking about? God spoke the world into existence. He brought order 
He created what we call earth. And at one point he flooded it. Why did he flood it? Left the water on? Not at all. He flooded it because he said, listen, this is your instruction for life. This is your living. This is the best way for you to experience my presence. But I don't, I'm not going to wire you so you have to do it just because I want you to and it's best for you. You get to choose. And we know humanity chose to go against God, to reject God. And at that point, he said, you know what? I'm going to judge the earth this time. And actually, we know from reading Revelation, this is going to take place. A judgment will happen again. But you see what I said. They willfully forget. Could you willfully forget something for me? No. (laughs) Because I say to you, hey, uh, forget about what I said. Just just forget about it, you know. And then I come back two weeks later. You remember that thing I told you to forget about? Did you forget it? Because it's pretty hard to do. If you answer yes, then you obviously remembered it so you could say you forgot it. You see what I'm saying? How do you willfully forget something? The key is willfully. I will not admit the truth. I will not agree with something that disturbs me, that changes my behavior that causes me to think differently, that causes me to actually follow the truth of the word of God. This happens with Christians too. When we say, in this area of my life, I'm okay. With this, I can do this. And God's saying, that's just going to bring bad things in your life. Working through some challenges of life on my own, I realized that there are times when we choose to do something, it's like planting a seed. But that seed doesn't bear fruit instantaneously. If we embrace a form of bitterness or unforgiveness or we embrace something towards another person and we're not struck down by lightning, then God must approve of it because we weren't rapidly judged. Always remember this. You can invite and plant a seed of unforgiveness or bitterness and it may be 10 years before the thorns show up in your life. And when it shows up that much later, what do you say? God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this? See, I always want to be very careful. I don't want to say, you know, hey, you know, it's okay. I just, you know, I'm just going to do it this way. I don't want to willfully forget. You can't willful. I mean, willful, it, you can. I, oh, here's why I willfully forget. Let me finish with this. La, 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 la. That's how we do it, really. I, I will only, oh, this is neat and comfy. Oh, yeah, praise Jesus. You're so good. Da, da, da. I'm not mocking cliche. I'm just saying, let's be real. There's times when we got to stop and go, I don't want to willfully forget because that's what happens generationally up to us even currently. They forget that God has said, this is how it's going to go down. Be aware. Notice it goes on to say in verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So drawing from the application I've just used and bringing right into the simplicity of this text, Okay, so yeah, I get it. Jesus is coming back. Well, God is eternal, and he produced the temporal. He created a kind of a reference for you and me, a time continuum, so to speak. We reference from birth, correct? That's just our general reference and other things we do, from birth to departure. So we have this sense of this is the timeline, but God does, he created that for our benefit because he actually lives outside of that. So to us, a thousand years is a long time, but a day is actually as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So we realize when we come to that conclusion, that we see this text, like, wait, Jesus has been gone like almost a weekend. 
like two days. That's just so much different. Well, why is he, why is he even taking that long? We know John 14, he's going to prepare a place for us. And we looked at that here just a couple weeks ago and a few other things. But understand the text tells us. For the Lord, verse 9, is not slack concerning his promise. What promise? I'm coming back. As some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, as much as I long for his return... He will not follow my timeline at someone else's expense. He will not listen, so to speak. We can't coerce him. God, if you could just come back now. I'm so done with life. I'm so done with this place. I'm so done with that hurt and that pain. But there's somebody who's going to be saved in two weeks. You see what I'm saying? What if, what if he would have answered uh, your grandpa's prayer during the Depression? Come, Lord Jesus, come. How many people between that time and now don't get saved? See, there's just so much that's beyond us in the sense of, you know, working it through. Is we have to say, you know, Lord, you have a greater thing in mind. It's not his desire that anybody would perish. He has not created some to occupy hell. He didn't just make some. They can't ever believe. They're just made that way. And then there's those who believe, and there's no free will involved. It's just some are just destined for one or the other, which is really bad theology, what he has created, as we see here, his desire is that they would, people would respond to the gospel. They would receive his gift of life. He gives grace, unmerited favor. He brings along faith, injects it into us, that we can exercise that freely given faith and respond to his invitation for salvation, all the while not making us do it. At any moment, we can say, you know what? I don't know. I don't want it. Isn't, doesn't that cause your brain cells to kind of, it's worse, probably fries more brain cells than alcohol. Seriously, because you just smoke it. Like, no, but it has to be this or it has to be this. Do not get put into a doctrinal camp at the expense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is bigger than our little brains can process. And he has this beautiful gift right here that he desires that we would come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We've been reading about it in Revelation, verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since what we know here, the earth and the, and the, and the powers and the influences and, and, the, and the distractions and the pleasures and the deception and all the things within will be dissipated, dissolved. We've been reading about it in Revelation. Since that will come to play, since this temporal will pass, live with an eternal perspective. Be aware. This is how where it's going. You know, how should we live? Verse 11. What manner of persons ought we to be in, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire with the elements, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The desire to see Jesus return is not escapism, it's realism. Because he says he's coming back. And he laid down the framework and put it in place. And with that in mind, we want to go, okay, Lord, 
Help me to be aware. Help me to behold. Help me to be looking forward to what the future holds as I live purposely in this current time. Let's use that to springboard back to Revelation 22. We will return to 2 Peter at the close of our study today. In Revelation 22, we started at verse 12. We've made it all the way to verse 12. And uh, it says in verse 12, Behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me. Whoa, 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 whoa. Reward? My reward is with me? Wait. So let me give you a scenario that I've kind of just thought through more as a, an analogy and, and not somehow to convey the experience um, as we enter into heaven. But some are like, I, I thought I just believe and like, boom, I get a backstage pass with privileges to heaven. You know, I went forward at an event or I you know, responded to a message on TV, or I heard somebody share something, or I read a little, you know, tract or thing, oh, I believe in Jesus. Now I get to go to heaven. That's all I got to do. Well, yes, after your identity is verified. If you're given a pass backstage, if you ever had one, you know what I'm talking about, it's pretty awesome. I got to go backstage on a concert, and it was just phenomenal to me to be on that side of the, and see everything unfold. It was really cool. But I had to show who I was. I had to have ID to get the path. And what a, what a picture it is to me. After your identity is verified, and so maybe we'd say, and there's this thought that we're at the pearly gates. I don't know if they're pearl, and I don't know if Pete's even there. But there's Peter at the pearly gates, and somehow we're going to have this interaction before he checks our pass. But anyway, we'll play with that weird picture. Oh, yeah, 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 Peter, here, here's, my, here's my Jesus saved me card. I got the conversion verification form. Notice the verses and even the certification, the seal, the stamp. Uh, where, where'd you get this? Oh, a church gave it to me. Hmm, well, we don't use copied verification up here we use a heart scan as well as a lifestyle verification video hey let's roll the video uh excuse me because really honestly that's about the truth of of salvation our, we're, we're, we live different when we believe because we've been born again and so because we are different people we live different and if we're not living different then we got to go, wait a minute. Why am I not living different? Reward is not to get you into heaven. Reward is what is given to his children in heaven. It's so important to see the difference because people get confused over this. Oh, I got to go to church. I got to do right. I got to be good. I want to make sure I get to heaven. That ain't going to get you to heaven. The work has been done through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very work of Jesus himself. That's the work. Our righteousness, we're told in Philippians 2, is actually what he did right for us. And the right thing we do is receive the rightness that he did. And that's all we can do. Now, because we're born again, right in his sight by his work, we will live differently. Love compels you. Love changes you. You live differently. The work doesn't get you into heaven. The work spoken up here is an expression of love. It's a result of conversion. So different. And God knows the difference. It, religion teaches us to, to make an impression upon people. But Jesus says, you know, I, I know the heart. I don't look at the outward. I am aware of the inward. I know what's going on there. 
So if you hold on to an experience or a moment of being born again, and your life does not reflect new life, you should be seriously concerned. Seriously. You don't want to be just so in sync where you can just like, I know I'm born again because Jesus loves me and I put my faith in him. But you have no like reference like that, that my life changed that day. Certain things started offending me that day. Certain things convicted me that day. From that time on, I see I, something changed within me. You don't have to be perfect. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being transformed, being shaped by the very image of God. The reward in heaven is a result of an obedient new life now. Let's run back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. We looked at it previously, but consider what it says there, especially in verse 2. We already considered verse 1. Our lives are a reasonable expression of worship, an act of worship. So as we make this choice, we respond to the gospel, it's just reasonable that we would present our bodies, living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, and do not be shaped, formed by this world, but something different. Be transformed, changed from the inside out, a new creation, transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's this, this new way of thinking. Not justifying the old way, but a life expression, an act of obedience because we're born again. The renewing of your mind that you may put to the test. Literally what prove means there is that you may, may prove, put it to the test, confirm to yourself. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? See, God's will is that we would be conformed in his image or into his image and likeness by his presence, through his power, for his glory. Not just some religious thing we do but rather something that's taking place deep within. Let's, let's roll through. We're, we're going to close out this portion. We've already made it to verse 13. Let's go to verse 13, Revelation 22. I make sure I'm going to, I'm going to clarify this. We'll be quick. You just got to remember, jewels in your heavenly crown, this reward, are given by God to his children who express their love by walking in obedience to him. And it's not works to get right with the Father. It's a response to the great work of the Father. And we're born again. Now, in verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Hopefully you've read your Bible. Maybe you've even done some of the studies. I am is a powerful statement. It's God's way of conveying to humanity, I am. Not, I will be. When, when we get to heaven, I'll fix some things. I kind of overlooked them on creation, but I'll make it better for you when we get there. It's not that. It's I am. It's not I was back then. It's I am. And notice what he goes on, because it seems somewhat redundant, but it's not. It's repetition for retention. And in plus also depth and detail. I am the alpha. The Greek language is the first letter. I am the starting point. The last letter is omega, the finality. I am the starting point and the finality. goes on to tell us I am the beginning and the end. Maybe that would trigger to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He, he is the one that brought faith to you and planted it and gave it for you to open and walk in. And he's also the one that brings it to fruition, completion. He's the finisher of our faith. 
And notice then he says the first and the last. First in that before him there is no one. We know from Colossians chapter 1, this is detailed for us. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. So he is saying, Jesus himself is made known to you and me. That he is the first and he is the last. He is our only option. Jesus said with great compassion, but with with very clear direction, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. It's the only way by which a man can be saved. You know, in this life only, we decide where we will spend eternity. God paid the greatest price possible for us. Now is the day of salvation. There's not going to be, well, I'll just see how the tribulation is. Or, you know, some people foolishly don't understand the details to the tribulation and think, you know, mostly testosterone-driven, silly men. Think, oh, I'll just go through the tribulation and make my decision then. Well, you probably won't live, hot shot. But even if you did, you're not going to turn then. Now is the day. You could get saved in the tribulation. Don't get me wrong. You've been with us. You've seen that you could. But if you won't respond to the love and grace now, we got more excuses. Now, why would you respond then? You know, and so I guess what I'll just finish with this clarity. You make your decision for eternity where you'll spend eternity in this life only. Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. There's not, okay, well, I'm going to wait. And then those who still aren't sure, I will see what can I do other than die myself for their sins to cleanse them and redeem them. There's nothing else. There's no way that there's going to be another plan of salvation. This is it. Now is the time. And he says, you know, look, you know, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So if you're not sure, you probably picked up on it. I'm really concerned, not, not for any face or person that I know here, but I just know the world I live in. I know we have opportunity for this message to go forward, not only this morning in, in a geographic place, but also online. And it can be picked up later and whatever it may be, however God desires it. But get right with Jesus. It's really the key. This world wears you out. Agreed? There's an interesting thing that we know about. It's called battle fatigue. Um, We can draw even an element of it, knowing the battle at least, where Paul said, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And he said that to encourage Timothy likewise to fight the fight. It's a battle. And people get... Battle, battle weary. It's where you're just constantly one onslaught after another and you just start, oh. It, there's a new term that they're using for it in a way. It's a variation of it maybe to make civilians happy. It's called crisis fatigue. Crisis fatigue is just one thing after another. And then you hear about something and you're like, yeah, well, all right. Do you ever feel sometimes insensitive because you hear of hardship, but you've heard of so much, you're like, yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it's an element of crisis fatigue. We get weary of hearing all these things. And sometimes it's because we just need to reset and realize, hey, this isn't going to stay this way. This isn't going to end this way. I, I want to make sure I remind myself, hey, there's crisis, there's situations, there's difficulty. But my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in God. And we don't have a hope that like, oh, I hope it works out. We have a hope that's certain and absolute. It's already declared, it's already prepared, and it's already accomplished. It is done. It is finished. 
We are just waiting for that trumpet call. And while we're here, we want to be purposeful. So if the worship team come back up. I mentioned we're going back to 2 Peter. And if you could join me in that now, back to 2 Peter 3. And why don't we uh, stand together as you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, specifically verse 17 and 18. In 2 Peter, as we've seen, this is practical application, of course, in the days we live in. Some very real-life ways to live in obedience to the, to the love of God. We also have a continuing exhortation, if you would. And as you know, I, as we close out time together and study, I like to pray through a portion of Scripture. It's kind of awkward for some because you maybe want to look as I read along and pray along and you're used to assuming the prayer position, you know, where you shut down your senses, you hold your hands together so you don't hit nobody and then you you kind of close your eyes and you do this. It's just your sensory. You're just kind of trying to focus. But it's okay. Sometimes you can look and pray. You know what I'm saying? So let's pray together. I'm going to pray through this passage as we uh, consider what God has spoken to each one of us today. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that you declare to us we are your beloved and that you are mine, that you love us. And Lord, I pray that as we are responding and receiving and realizing your grace, that our, our lives would be a living expression. And since we know beforehand all these things that are going to take place, may we be cautious people, careful people, aware so that we don't fall from our own steadfastness. That, Lord, we would keep our eyes on you. That we not be drawn away, led away by the error of the wicked. Lord, may we be careful where we stand lest we fall. May we not be so confident in ourselves that we're, we're falling downhill and don't know it. May we be confident in you, God. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior, who is the Christ. Bring about that growth in our lives that we can be humble people, teachable by you, hungry for you. And may it be to your glory, Jesus, both now and forever. And we all said together, amen.